My name is Ali. I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor. I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Right. I'll complain about a couple of things Please. before we get into the beat of it. Um, the first is that I have a bit of a cold, which I've kind of never stopped having from like two months ago. Long COVID. I think it's honestly, I think it's long COVID. I think like everyone just has long COVID. I have lots of friends who also just seem to have permanent colds. People are getting bouts of fatigue, yep. just tiredness. I think it's it's got to be the long coves. Mm. Lovid, if you will. Nice. So that's one thing. The other thing is, I am struggling to get out of bed these days. And I usually waste about 30 to 60 minutes in the morning snoozing my alarm while not really getting 30 to 60 minutes more sleep. Yep. So that's the other thing I wanted to complain about. Okay. Why do you, why do you think that's happening? I think I'm probably not getting sleep on time. Like last night, for example, like, you know, I, I would, in theory, I should be, I should be like sleeping like 1030 so I can get up at like 630. Okay. Which is what I want to do. And last night was the New York Times live stream interview of SBF. And so my wife and I were watching that in bed on the phone <laughs> from 10 p.m. to 11, wow. 15 p.m. Was I supposed to not watch that? I didn't watch it. It was it was quite interesting. Okay. What was interesting about it? Um, just interesting seeing like what this guy is saying. I think basically, so I think my view is I'm more skeptical of him post this interview. Um, he did another interview a couple of days ago uh, with Tiffany Fong. Yeah, this thing. And then I think tomorrow, or actually maybe today, he's going, there's an interview of him going to go on like Good Morning America, this like daytime US mm. news talk show thing. I try and get one deep dive. So I think, well, yeah, it seems like he's doing a bit of a sort of, Public rehabilitation. Yeah, public rehabilitation, sort of like public sympathy tour, um, where he's trying. He, he's now like going around. He has a he has a few like um, set pieces that he talks about. Uh, there's one set piece around uh, how like making customers whole is like his number one priority. Yeah, um, that's one set piece. There's one set piece about um, how you know every it's been a very difficult time for everyone close to him, his parents, his friends, his colleagues, all this There's a set piece around oh, that. Yeah. Um, there's a set piece around like, you know, I, I messed up. I messed up big time, <laughs> you know, just like a sort of, um, yeah. So he's, he didn't really give any, any like super real answers yesterday to the hard questions. Mm. Um, there was a lot of just like, Cloaking things in random finance terms, smokes and mirrors, things like this. I see. Uh, was it was it worth staying up for this forty five minutes? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like it's interesting for sure. It's not that I wasn't hoping to. You know, I wasn't expecting him to like come out and say like, "Yeah, lol." You know, I did this thing. Yeah. But yeah, it's like it's not. It's not often that there's like this kind of thing in the news that you can like care about. I guess. Yeah, I do think that like. Once one becomes more cultured about the world, then the news becomes more interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. like if, if you had some context around, I don't know, so, so someone who appreciates societies and civilizations and stuff would probably be following the situation in Ukraine pretty carefully to be like, 
this is kind of cool. It's like a proper war. Yeah. And it's like been decades since we've had a proper war. Okay, let's follow this. Right. Kind of yeah, almost yeah. day by day. And yeah, just having the, the background context around a particular thing makes the live events around the particular thing way more interesting. Yeah. But also kind of gets you into this thing of like actually caring about the news when realistically there's nothing. You, there's not yeah, going to affect your life in any way. Knowledge, yeah. And it's resulted in you being sleep deprived <laughs> when you could have watched the interview at 2.5 x speed <laughs> a day later. <laughs> but no, you had to catch it live. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I generally wait for the CoffeeZilla commentary videos to come out on this stuff so he can he can offer context on things. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the autism capital tweet summary thread was pretty decent about it. To be honest. Yeah. Okay. It probably wasn't worth staying up for that, but I thought it might be anyway um all right today we're going to be continuing uh, unless you have any, any complaints any complaints one of my complaints about life i feel like yeah, it's good it's like as as people get older they start um complaining about their ailments in life what yeah. am i doing oh i'm flying to dubai today oh nice yeah yeah i'm going for the nas summit or something like that what's nas uh it's like this creator creator summit thing i'm giving it to keynote on saturday so that'd be fun oh is nas this creator guy yeah wait which uh, guy? N- nas daily I mean, that's his. Is this the guy that interviewed? That went to the Palmas. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> this guy. Right. What's his deal? Uh, he has been doing. He's basically like daily short form video content before it was cool. Uh, blew up on Facebook circa 2015, 2015, 2017, I think. He's got like 50 million followers across all platforms. Last time I checked. Right. Yeah, it's just like super big. In particular, in like non-Western countries. Oh, okay. Um, I think huge in the Middle East, huge in India and Pakistan, like absolutely enormous it's like it's like, it's like really cool it's like he's, he's telling stories of people whose stories are otherwise not told like sam backman fried and <laughs> cz um but also like they go to a random like be like you know this person is running this cool operation that recycles um, sanitary products in the, some village in india and that's right. cool and let's kind of <coughs> showcase that so it's actually really good stuff um and yeah he does these like creator conferences so what are so you they, doing they kindly invited me out a few months ago as well i'm giving a talk about, about creative stuff what, what do you mean create stuff? I haven't figured out yet. When, when is the talk? On Saturday. Huh. How long is it? I don't know, like half an hour. Okay. Yeah, this is... But you've done a few of these, right? This so is like my bread and butter. I can just spit yeah, yeah. all and go on stage and be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> read the crowd, get a feel for how many subscribers the pe- people in the room have, and then tailor the talk accordingly. Yeah. I hope they don't ask for slides. When they ask for slides, then I'm like, oh, okay, now this needs... I need, I need a game plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but no, that should be fun. Flying Etihad so Airways business class. Nice. Exciting. How, how long? Until Sunday. It's like Thursday oh, wow. to Sunday. It's just like a three-day trip. Damn. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. So Sweet. that's not really a complaint. It's just like, it's kind of cool. Yeah. And I've got a call with my book editor on Friday, why tomorrow. And I might be saying to Rowan, like Rowan, mate, I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to make the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we might have to push it, push it forward, really? push it back. Yeah. Because initially it was like January 2024 was the deadline. 2024? Yeah, like the, the, the publication date. Yeah. But then various things happened and we pushed it forward to September of 2023. Oh, really? Okay. So now it was about go. a month ago and now I regret pushing it forward to September of 2023. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I don't think that's enough time to actually make it make it good in my eyes. Because right now it's not very good. What do you think is the issue? Like, are you just not spending enough time on it? And that's why it's taking longer than expected or like... I mean, it's not really taking longer than expected. It's taking, like, uh, books take ages. But also I'm not spending as much time as I would like to. Yeah. But like, do you care about super prioritizing it or are you happy? I care. So the two important things are A, the book and B, keeping the YouTube channel ticking along. Yeah. Um, in a way, the YouTube channel is more important than the book because the YouTube channel is an existential part of the business. Yeah. The book is just like a yeah. the new 
a new thing. Yeah. But no, broadly, each day from like nine till one, I've got an broadly uninterrupted book writing time. Hmm. And then in the afternoon, two till five, I film something. So that's like my schedule. Okay. But I'm thinking of pushing it to two till six and then doing my workout like six till 7.30 and then just rejigging my calendar around. Oh, dude, it's just this whole, this whole thing about the calendar, right? Yeah. Having like the default routine in the calendar and then each week looking at what's coming up and just like moving blocks around, but sticking to at least a, yeah. a rough default right. around knowing that every day I need to find an hour for exercise. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. where's that going to go? Every day I need to find an hour for dinner. Where's that going to go? Yeah. Every day I need to find four hours of book. Where's that going to go? Like, is actually remarkably helpful. Hmm. And even if I, I found myself sticking to it, maybe like 80% of the time. Okay, but that's, that's like pretty good. Way, like infinitely more intentional I'm, I've ever been about spending my time. Yeah, yeah. Just purely because I have blocks in the calendar that tell me what to do. And I decide in advance, like, okay, I'm going to Dubai. Therefore, this thing is happening. Therefore, okay, on the flight, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And, yeah, and yeah. like tomorrow, like based on Dubai times, I'm going to do this and this and just things like that. Even when I'm like back in the UK, like next week, I was like, cool, when I have a date night that week, when I have a night with friends that week, when I have a kind of book time night that week, cool, yeah. let's make it happen. Send some messages out being like, hey, you're free for brunch, you're free for dinner. Yeah. Yep. And it's so good. It's just like operating the, the organizing almost on a week to week basis rather yeah. than trying to schedule things out like a month in advance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the, I think the calendar blocking is just the only way to do it, really. Um, I think whenever I do that, probably... Yeah, maybe 60 or 70% sort of actually sticking to it and not letting other things get in the way, yeah. et cetera. I mean, it's fine if things get in the way, but it's, at yeah, least it gives you a around, sense yeah. of default. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Anyway, yeah, that's it. Enough calendar chat. So do you remember what we were talking, what this book was about? Uh, yes, it's called Why Love Hurts. And it's basically trying to make the point that the way we think about romantic love is somewhat bad in the modern day or different in the modern unique, day, yeah. unique, and is not a thing that's happened in a, a bygone era. And back in the day, people would marry for not love. And people would just be, just be like, yeah, you, I guess you grow to love them over time, but it doesn't really matter if you don't. Whereas now this like love and stuff is such a huge part of like the modern psychological man. Yeah. Or something like that. So we just did the preface last week. Yes, correct. Yep. Um, yeah, it basically, I think you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. It took, uh, the book basically explores the unique situation in which we are um, when it comes to love in the current era um, and how that makes us feel and why why we think certain things about love and romance and why we feel certain ways about it. Um, cool. So last time we read some highlights in the preface, um, Let's now move on to chapter one. Uh, just give me a sec here. And so I think with all the like Freudian psychology stuff that was developed over the 20th century, um, one of the points that she's making is that the way we interpret romantic pain and romantic suffering yep. today is very much like colored by these ideas that we have around sort of psychology and and sure. What? So if I've been struggling in relationships my whole life, it's because the way I received love from my parents was a bit dodge. And yeah. I'm seeking out dysfunctional patterns that I once had in childhood. Yeah. My father was not particularly present. Therefore, I'm seeking someone who has an avoidant kind of attachment style who's also not particularly present because to me, that's what love looks like. Right. Yeah. Things like this. And then, and then also that the, the kind of solution is uh, through like trying to gain self-knowledge, a lot of like 
talking to other people and um, you know things like this. So um, what she says is that she says the extraordinarily successful industry of self-help was made possible against the backdrop of the deep-seated belief that our miseries are tailor-made to our psychic history. Yeah. That speech and self-knowledge have healing virtues and that identifying the patterns and sources of our miseries helps us overcome them. The agonies of love now point only to the self, its private history and its, its capacity to shape itself. And she's talking about the importance of soci sociology as like a, as a field today because of how because of how important sort of individual responsibility now it is in our like mental models for things. She says that sociology remains vital. She says, in the same way that at the end of the 19th century, it was radical to claim that poverty was not the result. I think we talked about this actually, right? Yeah. At the end of 19th century, she's basically saying that like, you know, at the end of the 19th century, if you saw like a homeless guy, you'd think uh, he needs to sort his life out. It's probably yeah. his fault. Whereas now you think he's kind of the victim of the system and, yeah. You know, Whereas if someone has been in a string of like failed relationships and is unhappy in their romantic life, you think they need to sort their life out. Yeah. Rather yeah. than they're a victim of circumstance. Yeah, rather than they're a victim of the system in which we do like romance these days. Okay, cool. Um, okay, the other claim that she kind of makes is that love in modern times is much more central to our happiness and identity than it was before. It's definitely this important thing. But she makes the point that today it's like a really central part of our identity where it's previously you kind of had your identity and then you had your romantic sphere and all the all whatever whatever was going on in the romantic sphere my claim here is that the reason why love is so central to our happiness and identity is not far from the reason why it is such a difficult aspect of our experience both have to do with the ways in which self and identity are institutionalized in modernity ah, okay so now now this is this this passage just gives a good summary of the book okay as Karl Marx fa famously put it, human beings make their history themselves, but they do not do so voluntarily, not under circumstances of their own choosing, rather under immediately found, given and transmitted circumstances. Uh, and she, she then says, when we love or sulk, we do so by using resources and institutions that are not of our own making. And it is these resources and situations this book would like to study. Sorry, resources and situations. Throughout the following pages, my overall argument is that something fundamental about the structure of the romantic self has changed in modernity. Okay. Okay. Very broadly, this can be described as a change in the structure of our romantic will, uh, what we want and how we come to implement what we want with a sexual partner, chapters two and three. As a change in what makes the self vulnerable, that is what makes one feel unworthy, chapter four. And finally, as a change in the organization of desire, the content of the thoughts and emotions which activate our erotic and romantic desires, chapters five and six, how the will is structured, how recognition is constituted, and how desire is activated constitute the three main lines of analysis of the transformations of love in modernity. Ultimately, my aim is to do to love what Marx did to commodities, to show that it is shaped and produced by concrete social relations, to show that love circulates in a marketplace of unequal competing actors. Ooh. And to argue that some people command greater capacity to define the terms in which they are loved than others. Sounds interesting. Okay. So she talks about kind of the historic inequality slash very different gender roles that were kind of normalized. So the male ideal of chivalry, chivalry had one cardinal stipulation. 
to defend the weak with courage and loyalty. The weakness of women was thus contained in a cultural system in which it was acknowledged and glorified because it transfigured male power and female frailty into lovable qualities, such as protectiveness for the one and softness and gentleness for the other. Okay. So, you know, back in the day when, um, when culture was a bit different, um, you know, the fact that women are, you know, physically weak and vulnerable compared to men, it was part of like the, it was part of the culture, right? It was, and it was part of like how people viewed roles. And what that meant was that instead of male strength being seen as like, I don't know, this kind of dangerous thing or whatever, and instead of female weakness being seen as this like pathetic thing or whatever, um, you know, the, the kind of cultural lens for these things were through which these things were viewed were, um, yeah, get kind of like transformed it so that ma- men are the kind of these protectors and, and protectiveness is kind of how they channel their, um, their strength. And instead of women being like weak and pathetic, they're kind of soft and gentle and, you know, these kind of traditionally yeah. feminine qualities. That's right? what Andrew Tate says as well. <laughs> is it? Yeah. <laughs> nice. His whole, his whole spiel is like men are the protectors and then, you know, why is your Andrew Trait impression so good? How much have you practiced that? <laughs> well, how much videos you know. have you watched? <laughs> Sam, let's cut this from the... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I've, just seen, I've just seen some of his stuff. <laughs> All right, I'll carry on. Women's social inferiority could thus be traded for men's absolute devotion in love, which in turn served as the very site of display and exercise of their masculinity. More, women's dispossession of economic and political rights was accompanied and presumably compensated by the reassurance that in love they were not only protected by men but also superior to them. It is therefore unsurprising that love has been historically so powerfully seductive to women. It promised them the moral status and dignity they were otherwise denied in society and it glorified their social fate, which was taking care of and, and loving others as mothers, wives, and lovers. Thus, historically, love was highly seductive because it concealed, as it beautified, the deep inequalities at the heart of gender relationships. Oh, hello. Okay, interesting. Um, that's, a, that's a good take. That's a good, yeah, it's an interesting yeah. take, yeah. Uh, so love is particularly appealing for women because it masks the fact that society is stacked against them in almost all ways. But the institution of love and marriage and stuff, A, says to women that like, almost like, you know, when people criticize Islam around on misogyny grounds, yeah. people often say that, no, 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 Islam's not misogynistic. Islam like elevates women. And, you know, women are elevated by the fact that their husbands have to provide for them. And the right. fact that, and this is why inheritance laws are as they are, because the husbands have to provide for right. women and yeah. the family and stuff. And so it sounds like she's saying something similar around society, where essentially the, the institution of love convinced women, convinces, convinced, whatever, whatever word you want to use, yeah. that they are not, in fact, unequal in society. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of, the point is basically that there was this understanding of some kind of normative way of being mm. where men have certain stre- strengths yeah. and attributes. Like men have more power and strength, but they also have what comes with that is more responsibility. Yeah. Things like this. And so there was just kind of, so yeah, just kind of some normative understanding of men should do X, Y, and Z yes. and women should do X, Y, and Z. Um, and she's saying that, you know, because women you know, socially, politically had sort of fewer rights, fewer opportunities back in the day, and physically women are weaker. The way that the the way that culture viewed love and relationships was actually really important 
um, particularly for women, because it kind of, uh, you know, in a, in a culture in which it is kind of seen as very sort of virtuous and a good thing as a, a sort of normatively good thing for a woman to be a mother, for mm -hmm. example, that is, okay, that is a way that women can have sort of dignity and respect despite their lack of like social and political power yeah. and lack of physical strength. Cool. That's a good take. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, so this is kind of you know now overlapping a bit with the rise and triumph of the modern self. So she's so she's talking about how in modernity, like post World War One, basically lots of things have changed, and the culture of love and gender identity has changed as well. She says this culture did retain and even amplify the ideal of love as a power that can transcend daily life. Yet when it put the two political ideals of gender equality and sexual freedom at the center of intimacy. It stripped love of the rituals of deference and the mystical aura in which it, it had hitherto been shrouded. All that was holy in love became profane, and men were at last forced to face with their sober senses the real conditions of women's lives. It is this profoundly split and dual aspect of love, both as a source of ex existential transcendence and as a deeply contested site for the performance of gender identity that characterizes contemporary romantic culture. More specifically, to perform gender identity and gender struggles is to perform the institutional and cultural core dilemmas and ambivalence of modernity, dilemmas that are organized around the key cultural and institutional motives of authenticity, autonomy, equality, freedom, commitment, and self-realization. Um, so she's saying... Sorry, can you read out that list again? <clears throat> so she's saying that these are the current virtues of... No, modernity. these are... Well, to, to perform the current sort of motives... Uh, of institutions and culture are to promote authenticity, autonomy, equality, freedom, commitment, and self-realization. And the way that we sounds pretty good. The way, the way, <laughs> the way that we perform gender identity um, and the kind of the questions that we grapple with are all like through this lens of like these these kind of things. Right? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, I, I, I suppose where I don't know back in the day they might have added the word chivalry to that list, but. As our friend Louise Perry also says, that's a very unfashionable to, a term to use, to use these days. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm going to skip a big chunk and jump to my next highlight. So she's kind of, you know, just as context for this highlight, she talks about how, yeah, she, she's, she's about to talk about some of the beefs she has with our current sort of psychological mental models for okay. these things, okay? Fine. And she talks about how social and cultural arrangements and kind of are at the heart of how we experience and view like anger frustration disappointment that's part of like love and romance and okay. marriage and all this kind of stuff Fine. okay so she she kind of talks about you know, there's, a, there's different lenses through which you can view things um and if you if you view through yeah i think that nowadays there's an increasing tendency to view things through a psychological lens and kind of naturally the psychological lens will focus things on the self and the inner thoughts and feelings and experiences. And, you know, the psychological lens does not really have explanatory power beyond the individual's okay. like self, because that's what you're talking sure. about, right? As opposed to a sociological lens. Yeah, as opposed to a sociological lens. And so she's kind of saying that, look, we like nowadays, like we're only thinking, talking, learning about this love stuff through the psychological lens. Um, but actually sociology is more important than ever because so much of all of like so much of our psychology around this stuff is affected by the
the wider cultural milieu. Yep. Right, so she says, <clears throat> the grandfather of modern psychology, William James, claimed that the first fact for psychologists to consider is that the thinking of some sort goes on. Right. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And thinking, he said, is personal. Every thought is part of a personal consciousness that leads the individual to choose which experiences of the outside world to deal with or reject. All right. Contra somewhat controversial. In contrast, from its inception, the main vocation of sociology has been to debunk the social basis of belief. For sociologists, there is no opposition between the individual and the social because the contents of thoughts, desires, and inner conflicts have an institutional and collective basis. For example, when a society and culture promote both the intense passion of romantic love and heterosexual marriage as models for adult life, they shape not only our behavior, but also our aspirations, hopes, and dreams for happiness. I think this is, um, I think this is a really important point because I think, I think the, the modern narratives are very much from the William James book of like thoughts are, thoughts are personal and yeah. Uh, when I think when you elevate autonomy, like individual autonomy, to the degree to which it's been elevated, um, and you and you're kind of viewing it through this sort of psychological lens, um, you kind of forget the fact that actually, like our desires, our preferences, our aspirations, like all of this stuff, we're not just coming up with this stuff. We're we're sort of taking it in sort of uh, subconsciously from all the media yeah. we consume, all the other narratives around us. You know, if someone wants to wear a certain thing, if someone wants to do a certain job or whatever, like this, these, these are not sort of deeply authentic expressions of the individual. These are, you know, there's sure there's some like in individual expression there, but these are a reflection of, of like the culture that we're in and, and the stuff that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. <clears throat> I think it's how, like, it's often surprising that by pure coincidence, people in the same friendship group will be acting out their authentic selves by dressing identically. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, she says, that individuals vary in their interpretations of the same experiences, or that we live in social experiences mostly through psychological categories, does not entail that these experiences are private and singular. An experience is always contained and organized by institutions. For example, a sick person in a hospital, an unruly teenager in a school, an angry woman in a family, etc., and experiences have shapes, intensities, textures, which emanate from the way in which institutions structure emotional life. For example, much of the anger or disappointment in marriage has to do in the way in which marriage structures gender relations and mixes institutional and emotional logics. Say, a desire for genderless fusion and equality, and the distance that inevitably emanates from the performance of gender roles. Um, so yeah, just saying that like, look, people do have different experiences people do have like different thoughts and feelings based on on the surface the same experiences right um but that doesn't mean that like those thoughts and feelings are like purely sort of personalized and and like authentic or whatever um <clears throat> now now she says this is not to say that i deny the idea that there are important psychic differences between people i think the word psychic in this context is actually really useful i think after reading this book i started using the word psychic a lot more as opposed to psychological um, I think there's like, I think there's, there's kind of a nuanced difference. What's the difference? Uh, psychic differences versus psychological differences. Like explain it me. Maybe at the end, maybe at the end we can talk about that, but I'm okay. going to keep reading this. Fine, please. Um, this is not to say that I deny the idea that there are important psychic differences between people or that these differences do not play an important role in determining our lives. You know, people are different. Like people have different feelings based on the same inputs, whatever. Right. Rather my objection to the current dominant psychological ethos is threefold. Right, there we go. One, that we take that what we take to be individual aspiration and experience 
have in fact much social and collective content to them, right? Okay. Two, that psychic differences are often, though not always, nothing but differences in social positions and social aspirations. Mm. So she's saying that like, you know, if if two people are exposed to the same thing, like, and they have different like whatever feelings or like mental states as a result of it, she's saying like, you know, can pretty much just be explained by their social positions, <laughs> right? Rather than like, whatever. And three, finally, that the impact of modernity on the formation of the self and identity is precisely to lay bare individual psychic attributes and to grant them a crucial role in determining their destinies, both romantic and social. The fact we are psych- the fact we are psychological entities, that is, that our psychology has so much influence on our destiny, is itself a sociological fact. So... She's saying that the in in the sort of current narratives, as I call them, or like whatever sociological ideas, you know the the fact that in the, the fact that individual psychology is this is like the is the lens that itself is is a, is as a result of the kind of the, the culture social that, conditioning. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah exactly. okay, yeah. Um, I feel like you've been peddling this narrative for years. I back when. <coughs> Really? I remember there was a day I was visiting you in Oxford, oh, yeah. and you mentioned Wait, that when you, I was at uni. Yeah, you mentioned that you wee wee into the sink. Oh yeah, and everyone in the room was like, "Oh my god, like <laughs> that's that's disgusting." Yeah, kind of thing. Um, <coughs> and I was like, "What do you mean by <laughs> happened? <laughs> what do you mean by sink?" <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, and, and and after you said that. You said uh, that, look, guys, you've all got this wrong. You all think that peeing in the sink is an inherently disgusting thing. But the only reason you think that is because society has conditioned you to believe that. There is, in fact, no reason why peeing in the sink, like the stuff that comes out of my my pee-pee, is like more sterile than the stuff that comes out of my mouth, the, the, the stuff that comes out of your mouth when you spit toothpaste out. Yeah. And yet we have this cultural narrative around weeing in the sink is a bad thing. Yeah. I think it's the same thing when it comes to, for the record, changing bed sheets. And I agreed. pillowcases and duvet covers and Absolutely. the whole like the whole. I, it was it was only very recently. I someone I think I think it was Lucia told me. I was like, Lucia, when when we have guests staying over, you know, should we like change the sheets? And she was like, Yes, like <laughs> it's like rude to not do that. I was like, right. What? I haven't done look, this for like fifteen years. Look, look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Right. Yeah. I think male guests of our age do not care if the sheets have been changed. Mm. I'd say older generation male or female guests would you know strongly prefer the sheets to be changed and female guests even if i agree i'm I'm saying that those preferences are not a result of innate psychological authentic authentic (laughs) expression they are a result of performing societal expectations that sheets be changed how about that yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's yeah. like most people would prefer you not pee in their sink when you, when you visit their house, <laughs> when the bathroom, when the toilet is right there. Mm. But this is not an authentic expression of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think probably like, I think that's probably a different thing. Like, nah, it's the same thing, mate. <laughs> what? <laughs> same thing. I don't think anyone is. I don't think anyone views preferences like changing the sheets. You know. Not being the, people don't view these as like sort of authentic performances. They view the, I, I think they view them through the other lens, which we will you know talk about maybe after we're done with this book. They view it from the the lens of the 
the religion of science, science, scientism, mm. yeah. um, where we, you know, we have kind of basically religious beliefs um, surrounding the things that are, you know, scientific in nature. Mm. Um, and I think like the, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I, I think people would point like the, for the hygiene thing. Mm people would point to like look science is science is like science you know, has told us that germs exist so yeah the like the, the whole when you yeah. sit on the london underground you have lots of germs that get on go onto your jeans it's very weird to not wash your jeans at least once a week there yeah yeah as yeah. a result of the fact that these germs are yeah yeah, your yeah jeans yeah. yeah so i think like i yeah, yeah i think the i think the hygiene stuff the the, the psyop of hygiene oh i think yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i would argue the psyop of hygiene is a result of sociological <laughs> determinants <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i think the sociological determinants are the kind of the the sort of the, the science the scientific uh yeah. sort of view, view on things all right anyway anyway yes um sociology and psychic suffering yeah i think the difference between psychological and psychic is kind of that psychological implies some kind of analysis in the same way that describing something, you know, describing, you know, describing something as a social phenomena rather than a sociological phenomena. If you describe something as a sociological phenomena, I feel, you know, there's kind of this. Sounds more legit. Well, it sounds more legit, but there's more also like, this this sense of like some analysis has yeah, been done. It's like you an know? academic thing. Yeah, yeah. Like as the, as a social phenomena might be that, um, you know, people prefer sheets to be clean. Uh, well, I don't. I don't think that's a social issue. <laughs> <laughs> social issue in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly, yeah. We should talk about this. This has clearly had a big impact on you. <laughs> it's just the psyop of hygiene. <laughs> it's the psyop of hygiene. I agree, yeah. man. I agree. It's the psyop of hygiene. <laughs> but yeah, I think there is a difference, basically. Yeah, I think there are also clear gender differences in the psyop of hygiene but Dude, we, can, we, we can talk about this another time, yeah. mate. we were having this, this conversation in the team the other day of like how often do different team members wash their jeans yeah and there was a clear <laughs> divide <laughs> between like once a week to like once a year <laughs> yeah I, with like a bimodal distribution around those I, for, honestly for the long until until a few months ago from having conversations with lucia and other people i thought it was just understood that jeans are not a clothing item that you wash you just you just like wear the jeans couple of years down the line you get the new jeans but like these aren't it's not something you wash yeah quite it's like why would you wash your glasses <laughs> yeah you won't put them in the washing machine it's just, yeah. it's just a bit weird <laughs> yeah they'll get faded from its inception sociology's main objective of study has been collective forms of suffering inequality poverty discrimination diseases political oppression large-scale armed conflicts and natural disasters have been the main prism through which it has explored the agonies of the human condition sorry what was the first sentence Sociology's main objective of study has been collective forms of suffering, okay, like yeah. equality and yeah, true. Tr tr this is true in psychology as well. Um, it's mostly about suffering, really. Yeah, actually, yeah, it, ha it has been um, up until like <coughs> I think like two thousand and two or something. There's a guy called Martin Seligman invented quote invented the field of positive psychology, which was like, look, man, for the last hundred years, we all all psychologists have been suffering, have been studying suffering. Let's actually try and study what leads to flourishing rather than suffering. Oh, and right. It's only in the last 20 years that oh, self-help yeah. around positive psychology has really started to take hold. Yeah. Around what drives happiness and well-being and fulfillment rather oh, than what yeah, mitigates yeah. anxiety and stress and depression and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And like what explains, yeah. like, you know, your daddy issues explain X, Y, Z. Yes, yeah, right. That's wrong or whatever. Okay. So sociology has been very successful in analyzing these collective forms of suffering, yet has neglected the analysis of the ordinary psychic suffering that inheres in social relationships. 
resentment, humiliation, and unreciprocated desire are only a few among the many examples of its daily and invisible forms. So basically, you know, the kind of day-to-day struggle, individual level struggles of like, that come from social relationships, you know, have not really been viewed through a sociological lens. Even though sociology does a pretty good job of like interpreting and analyzing. Cool. So there's a lot uh, of like preambles. So like what's, what, what is she actually saying? Okay, around fine, the, fine. The stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we all buy the main point that like the way that we experience love and stuff in general is more affected by sociology yeah, than, yeah, we, yeah, than yeah. we like to yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, so I'll say one more thing. Um, she kind of makes this point that when we think about suffering, we think about the kind of large scale, visible kind of suffering, like poverty, violence, famine, you know, things like this. Um, and we omit the less visible, less tangible forms, such as anxiety, feelings of worthlessness, depression, etc., which are all embedded in ordinary life and, and ordinary relationships. Um, and so when she talks about social suffering, she actually also means the widespread anxiety, you know, humiliation, you know, all just like, the, you know, normal in inverted commas stuff uh so she says psychic suffering has two cardinal features right first as schopenhauer has suggested suffering derives from the fact that we live through memory and anticipation so memory and anticipation are kind of you know remember things in the past we're anticipating the future absolutely mate suffering is all about the past and the future in other words suffering is mediated through imagination the images and ideals that make up our memories expectations and longings a more sociological way of saying this uh, is to suggest that suffering is mediated by cultural definitions of selfhood. Second, suffering is characteristically... Hold on. Hold on. That seemed like a non sequitur. Or was that nothing she said that... Okay, I can I can buy that suffering is mediated... That suffering is a result of essentially of like... Memory and anticipation. Memory and anticipation. Yeah. Like expectations of the future. Yeah, so she's saying... to anxiety and like concerns about the past lead to depression and sadness and stuff yeah so she's saying uh, she's saying most a more sociological way of saying this is to suggest that suffering is mediated by cultural definitions of selfhood suffering is mediated by cultural definitions of selfhood yeah so you know she she talks about well the previous sentence is that suffering is mediated through imagination the images and ideals that make up our memory memories expectations and longings like the you know when we when we think of a memory that makes us like cringe or something and we feel bad yes, as a that's result. Culturally determined. Yeah. Rather like, than like yeah, an inherent result of that particular thing. Yeah. Like yeah, if I yeah. if I embarrass myself on stage doing a public speak public speaking thing. Yeah. The reason I'm, I feel embarrassed is because of the public consciousness around that thing rather than the fact that it was an inherently embarrassing event. Yeah. And like your your sort of idea of selfhood is, you know, if you say something super creative in front of a bunch of people, yeah, because like of the way you, you of my ego and like, yeah, yeah, okay, stuff fine. like this, like, yeah. that's what she's saying. Okay, and like this, the, the stuff you anticipate is also framed around like your idea of like, the what it means to be a worthy individual fine. and like, you know, all this kind okay, of yeah, no, fair enough. All right. Second, suffering is characteristically accompanied by a breach in our capacity for sense making. Okay. As a result, Wait, sorry, say that again. So suffering is characteristically accompanied by a breach in our capacity for sense making. Okay, I, I think what make, she's I can't make sense of this, therefore I will suffer. Uh, no, I think what she's saying is that when you are suffering, yep. you are much less capable of making sense of uh, like understanding and like oh, being I able see. to okay, think fine. through it. So it, it, I, it that's what I think. Okay. As a result, um, Paul Ricoeur says. Suffering often takes the form of a lamentation, lamentation about its blindness and arbitrariness. 
like when when we're suffering it's often hard to make sense of it and so then we kind of have these feelings of like oh man like this is so unfair like why is it why is this happening to me like what did i do to deserve this like you know you're sort of lamenting the blind arbitrariness of like why am i getting this suffering do you do you feel this sort of stuff the sort of why is it unfair yeah things like this i feel like i've or, or i just like literally never have that thought process yeah to be honest i don't think i have um but i also don't think i've experienced much suffering to be honest yeah yeah like maybe if someone close to me died or something i'd be like wow what the he- what the hell mm. <laughs> why me <laughs> i mean they've died but why yeah. why me <laughs> you know maybe maybe you know yeah um okay do you, think, do you think you would i don't i don't think i would but it's like i think obviously it's, it's hard to predict how one would, would, would respond to like a, a pretty adversely neg- negative event I think I think a lot of like my yeah I think my kind of narrative on stuff is more like this is part of God's plan and the grand narrative mm, yeah. that we're all a part of and you know it, it had to be this way nice yeah kind of thing fair enough yeah. I think that's that's how I generally view these things all right I'll carry on reading the highlight because suffering is the eruption of the irrational within everyday life it demands a rational explanation an account about dessert in other words an experience of suffering will be all the more intolerable to the extent that it cannot be made sense of when when suffering cannot be explained we suffer doubly all right one from the pain we experience and two from our incapacity to bestow meaning on it thus any experience of suffering always points us to the systems of explanation that are deployed to account for it and so whenever we suffer we're like you know you want to start being able to explain it because mm. otherwise like you're going to suffer again when you can't explain it. <laughs> yeah you can't explain it yep. and systems of explanation of suffering differ in the ways in which they make sense of pain they differ in the ways they allocate responsibility and the aspects of the experience of suffering they address and stress and in the ways in which they convert or not suffering into another category of experience be it redemption maturation growth or wisdom so yeah what i was kind of talking about is the sort of you know i feel like there's some you know broad divine wisdom to all of this so and so that's, you know, your, that's, that's, your, that's like, your explanation of suffering not explanation but just like my that's, I mean, if, that's if suffering is the event the event plus the explanation it's like you might you might suffer the event but okay sure you yeah, have an easy yeah. explanation that yeah. you can always use to then not suffer twice yeah all right I would add that modern psychic suffering, while it may involve a range of responses, is characterized by the fact that the self is directly at stake. The self being uh, its definition and sense of worth. Psychic suffering contains an experience which threatens the integrity of the self. Okay, so she, she says, look, skeptics could rightly claim that poets and philosophers have long been aware of the devastating effects of love and that suffering has been and is still one of the main tropes of love culminating in the romantic movement in which love and suffering mutually reflected and define each other right like you know everyone writes about love freaking shakespeare's like going on about this like Rome and juliet killing themselves because of romantic suffering like so she's basically saying look skeptics could say like dude everyone's been talking about the suffering romantic suffering like what's what's your point and she says yet this book claims there is something qualitatively new in the modern experience of suffering generated by love right what is properly modern in modern romantic suffering are one the deregulation of marriage markets chapter two two the transformation of the architecture of choice of a mate chapter three the overwhelming importance of love for the constitution of a social sense of worth chapter four four the rationalization of passion and five the ways in which the romantic imagination is deployed so 
the deregulation of marriage markets is kind of the first big interesting thing she talks about where um the the mar- you, you can kind of view um instead of ro- romantic kind of uh relationships as this kind of market with like different actors different values the values of like how valuable someone is romantically etc cetera, etc cetera. and sounds like some Andrew Tate stuff right there <laughs> it does sound a bit like some Andrew Tate stuff um also I've heard <laughs> and, she, and she just justifies pretty well why it like makes sense that why this like sort of economic market metaphor actually actually makes a lot of sense for this and I think particularly with the rise of like um dating apps and things like this it is you know it's pretty you know pretty market-like hmm. um sure and that kind of changes the way that we relate romance to ourselves. It changes the, the you know, suffering, et cetera, mm. that we have. Is a point similar, to, so sort of like how in an, in an economic system where like the, the values of things are either explicitly or implicitly visible, it is much easier for people to define their self-worth based on those economic values. Um, I don't think she ends up, I mean, she, 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 she definitely ends up saying that because of yeah because of like the marriage markets that we have today mm. and the much more liquid li- liquid marriage markets today than before we do define our self-worth based on how much we can command in the markets mm. like we do do that um sort of like people define their self-worth based on not how much money there is in their bank account because that's crass but more like the car they drive the house that they live in etc cetera, etc cetera. Whereas yeah, maybe like back that. in the day it was more about like the family that they were born into or yeah, like, yeah, 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 exactly, the, yeah. The hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. As it were. I think there's also, I think because the marriage markets previously were illiquid, and you know, we'll get to this next pod probably, because because the marriage markets were illiquid, it was like, okay, look, I'm born into this social class. In my, in my social circle, there are these like three other people within these social circles that are of similar marriageable age to me. And like probably end up marrying one of these guys, <laughs> yeah. like, and that's that. That's that. Yeah. That's Separately, it. I am. I have my own sense of self worth, etc. Outside of you know whether any of these three guys is like really into me or something. Yeah. Um, whereas today it's like okay, um, obviously there is there are still like large cultural and class related factors at play, but like. Largely, ostensibly the market is liquid yeah ostensibly, like, the ostensibly mar- we live in a meritocracy yeah, yeah yeah so like you know on on paper anyone can go for anyone else um and you know you now let's say on like a dating app you now have like the entirety of london at your disposal uh or you are at the disposal of the entirety of london <laughs> depending on how well depending you do on dating apps yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was good. <laughs> and so yeah it's like because the expectation is like look anyone can go for anyone and it's so liquid where like you can literally swipe through you know a thousand people of your age Hmm. in your city and you can know that damn only two of those people are like (laughs) vaguely romantically interested in me (laughs) then it's like damn like what am i worth like (laughs) etc so that's the reg- deregulation of marriage markets. Um, the transformation of the architecture of choice of a mate, which is the next big point she talks about. Um, a lot of her points, from what I recall, are related to how, um, how like, em- emotions, uh, the, the role that emotions and, like, feelings play in mate selection sure. is very different now than it was before. Okay, sure. And I think one, one of the interesting points that she makes is now that... 
um, the kind of the rituals of romance follow the emotions. You know, you f- you develop feelings for someone, and then you, you do the it. ritual, yeah. and then the feeling. You know, and then you know mm. your, the rituals happen as as, after as, the as you reach yeah. the feeling threshold. Whereas back in the day, it was like the ritual would happen first, and the feeling would follow. Yeah. Whereas back in the day. You know, the feeling follows the ritual, mm. basically. Nice, yeah, cool. So that was an interesting point. I love um, a good contrast like that. It's like <coughs> before X did X led to Y, but now Y leads to X. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, Feels very insightful. The next thing is the overwhelming importance of love for the constitution of a social sense of worth. We kind of talked about that a bit. The next one is the rationalization of passion, fairly self-explanatory. Uh, and the next one is the ways in which romantic imagination is deployed. I'm actually not sure what she means by that. I don't think I got to chapter six. But anyway, those are kind of like the main nice. areas of focus. So next pod, um, unless we'll we have... We'll discuss the deregulation of the marketplace. Yeah, marriage deregulation of marriage markets. Yeah, exactly. Should I read that chapter beforehand? Or do you reckon... Nah, I'll do it. I'll, I will actually, I think maybe like in bed over the coming week, I'll like okay. read through that. Sorry, I didn't mean something. that as a bit of a snarky kind of like, should, <laughs> do you want should, me to, should do you one want of me us to read do, this book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to do those dishes of yours? Do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you want me to clean those sheets? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, the sigh of hygiene. Yeah, all right. I'd better get to work then. Same thank goal. you. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. We'll Good see you stuff. next time. See ya. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at nOverthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.